to have our, our students back, those that went to camp. We had a bunch that, that uh, were doing other things and, and didn't get to go. But um, from, light, from darkness to light was the, the theme. And uh, I was looking at the, um, the, the outline of the four days that they were to go through content. And it basically boiled down to God is creator, God, the God who, God who creates, the God who cares, the God who calls, and the God who commands. The God who creates, let there be light, and in the beginning was God, and, um, and then he said, let there be light, and there was light. The God who cares, and we remember that God is love, that's his motive for everything he does, including judgment and wrath, which we're going to talk about today, and yes, I'm shaking a little bit because I'm having to, to share this message with you. Um, and then the God who calls, he calls us to light. And then the God who commands, and he commands us to go back into that darkness he pulled us out of so that we can pull someone else out into the light. So as we think about the judgment of God and the justice of God, we need to realize that God is, is sharing that with us in the word to help us realize that through his salvation and winning people to praise him, that we will choose, be more motivated to be a part of his redeemed instead of the condemned. Nobody, you, you don't get to hear a lot of sermons about the justice of God and the wrath of God. And, and maybe we're all happy about that. I know that it's not fun to, to think about and talk about. But it's, it's, it's super foolish to put your head in the sand to pretend it doesn't exist. And it lacks compassion when we don't think about how that impacts those who maybe don't understand that. So if we know it and we're like, yes, and I'm free and I don't have to face the judgment and wrath of God because I've been delivered by Jesus, then um, that's good news. But for those who don't know that, and that would be the majority of people in the world, they need to know that. And so the reason God gives us the book of Revelation in part is so that we will realize that he is, he is stretching this out. He's stringing this out so to, in, in a way to kind of give us a chance to realize that he is using evil to judge evil, and that judgment still awaits. Now, he's been judging since the garden, right? Adam and Eve, they quickly understood and realized there was judgment involved as they were removed from the garden of Eden after they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they became very acquainted with good and evil very quickly, and shame entered their world, and guilt entered their world, and their world came crashing down, and death entered their world, and we've been reaping that harvest ever since. But um, that's not the way it ends. As we've said, the best is yet to come, name of our series, right? And so we're going we're gonna to walk through chapter 15 here, um, you know, kind of in preparation for chapter 16, which is when God really unleashes everything. He, the judgment of God chapters go from, chapter, really starts chapter 4 and ends in chapter 16. Today, 15 is basically saying, buckle up because it's coming, okay? And um, nobody's excited about that, and nor should we be, but we do need to see God's glory and power in the justice and the just wrath of God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear wrath and I think of anger, I think of somebody losing their temper. I think of the times when I disciplined my kids and I was still angry when I did it. And I did that poorly and wrong and have repented of that and, and had gotten better. My kids are grown now, so I don't have to do that. But when they were young, I had to teach myself when they did something and I knew I needed to discipline them, I needed sometimes to just say, go sit on my bed, and I needed to cool down. They were angry, I'm angry. And uh, the bed and prepared them for the imminent punishment, we could talk soberly through why we were doing that, why discipline matters, why it's healthy, and why it's a mark of love. But the wrath of God, the justice of God, is not God a temper tantrum. He doesn't have a problem with anger. His anger is just and holy and righteous. And, and you and I may not understand this, or maybe not getting this, but we are glad he's the God of justice, because if he wasn't a God of justice, then evil would have no incentive to be afraid, would have no reason to be afraid, and have no incentive to change behavior 
and those who have done incredibly wicked things in our world get the justice they deserve. When somebody pulls the trigger maliciously murdering somebody, there's accountability, and we want there to be accountability. We want there to be justice for that situation. Well, now put that on a cosmic scale and think about not just the physical things that happen in our world, but think about the things that happen spiritually between us and God, and that affects us and, and how we relate to other people, and we realize justice is, is, a, is a beautiful trait of God, even though it is a violent trait of God. Justice is a subcategory of holiness. And God is holy. And one of the definitions of holiness is God's infinite zeal for what is good and his infinite opposition to what is evil. And of all the things you think about of, of a God, you would want this God, whoever your God is, I think you would want him to be very passionate about what is good and very opposed to that which is evil. And that's just one of his many traits. He's true, he's love, he's all-powerful, and, and more. And we'll get into some of that. But God is basically displaying his power and his glory through judgment to move us to, be, to want to be part of those who are not judged but are freed, redeemed, instead of being amongst the condemned. And while to you or me it may seem like an easy and obvious choice, to most people, it's not easy, it's not obvious, and it's not even possible. Because they have no desire. They're blind. We talk about darkness to light. One of the terrible things about darkness is that you cannot see what's happening around you when you are in darkness, especially pitch dark. I can still remember seventh grade, summer vacation, Mammoth Cave, Kentucky, and they take us into the cavern, and they say, okay, we're going to turn out the lights, and it's gonna, you're going to experience pitch black. And, you know, I'm seventh grade. I don't care. Like, wow, this is cool. Until they turned out the lights and I experienced pitch black, pitch dark. Can't see my hand. Happening around you physically, you're going to trip, stumble, do something. And so you just stand still and hope nobody else is moving around to knock you over. Now, imagine that in the spiritual realm. Darkness. Cannot see what's real and what's around you. Now think of some of the creatures that are described in Scripture that exist in the spiritual realm. Some good, like angels, and some wicked, like demons. And yes, Jesus talked about them as if they're very real, because they are. Now imagine not being able to see them. Well, that's not hard to imagine, right? I haven't seen any, at least not visibly. But they're real. And so when we talk about darkness to light, and we talk about the judgment of God, and we think of the mercy of God, let's not put mercy in the category of light and judgment in the category of darkness let's make sure that we realize that both are in the category of light motivated by a holy god who is loving and merciful but also judges sin mercy would anything if justice didn't mean anything so what is the difference justice is getting what you deserve and mercy is not getting what you deserve so if i'm standing before the judge and i've got my speeding ticket and i'm i'm like Okay, I, I'm just hoping that you'll show some mercy, Your Honor. Um, yes, I was speeding, but, um, you know, just looking for some mercy here. If he were to say, no, you pay the full fine, that would be justice, because that's what I deserve. Nail me to the mile an hour. It, it's totally right, and I totally deserve to pay the punishment. But if the judge said, after he said I was guilty, if he took off his robe and he came around and he paid my fine... He's still just, isn't he? He didn't just say, ah, you can walk. That would be a bit of a mockery of judgment, justice. But if he comes around and pays my fine for me, that's mercy without compromising justice. That's the kind of God we have. Okay? He wants to show mercy. Does he show mercy to everyone? He does not. Does everybody want it? Everybody wants mercy, but does everybody want God's mercy? They do not because they resist him. And God says, and Jesus said it, narrow is the way that leads to life and few will find it. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. And that is the group of people who know what people say about God, they just don't believe it. Or in some cases, they don't know. And we need to tell them. So as we read through this, I just want you to think about those things. Now, one other thing I want you to think about as we're going through this, at least one other thing. One other thing is this. So the question before us, and, and this has kind of been a, 
for me, this has been a revelation, no pun intended, um, that the book of Revelation is really a book of really incredible discipleship. And I never would have thought that. But it is, it really is radical discipleship because it really puts in front of you two options and it makes it very, very clear there's two choices and there's not a middle road here. There's no room for a middle road. You're either for God or against God. You're either for what he stands for or you're against what he stands for, for the kingdom of light or for the kingdom of darkness. So the question isn't, will I be a disciple? The question is, whose disciple will I be? Because we're all following somebody. We're all following somebody. Who will I? It's not will I follow somebody, it's who will I follow. And some of us are following individuals. Some of us are following people who've taught ideologies and philosophies and other religions. Some of us are, are, are following um, market trends and advertisers. Um, and we could go down and we could look at all the things in life that influence us. And we're all affected by these things to some degree. But when it comes down to what really matters, the question isn't, are you a disciple? The question is, who are you following as a disciple? And I would submit that scriptures make it very clear that to follow Jesus is to find that the best is yet to come. To follow Jesus is to find the way to true life. And it is the way of light, life, and love. That's the outline of the book of John. God is light, God is life, God is love. And to follow the prince of darkness, well, I think that's pretty obvious. It's to follow the ways that oppose God. And that leads to evil and wickedness. And it, a lot of the troubles in our world are because of that. Because God has given Satan some reign. He's got him on a leash, but he still has freedom to wreak havoc in our world. And sin has consequences ever since the garden. And God's judgment is still coming, and it is building and building and building. But what we're going to see today, in the very first verses, is that that judgment has an end. The end is in sight. So let's look at it together. Let's pray first. Lord, this is your word, and we are so grateful that we get to hear from it, and I thank you for it, because it reveals truth. It sheds light on who you are and what you're doing and why it matters to us. But Lord, I admit I don't understand all this. And so, Lord, as I try to explain what I do understand, I pray for your mercy and your grace. I pray that you'll open the eyes of our heart that we'll see Jesus that you'll open our minds and heart to what you want us to hear and see and act on today. Even if I don't get it, may those that are listening online and in this room hear and understand. Just help me have the words you want me to say and then get out of the way. In Christ's name, amen. Remember, John is the one writing the book and John is writing what he's seeing. It's a vision. The whole book of Revelation is a revealing of a vision that God has given him built with symbols all throughout that are that you could go back and find in the Old Testament and they brought forward to give us not he's using pieces of history past to show us history future now as I start to read through this there are three I saws or I looks and that's your outline if you're taking notes Roman numeral one two and three he's going to say I saw verse one he's going to say it again I saw in verse two and he's going to say it again I looked in verse five so you can go if you want to do an outline there all right, so here we go. Verse 1, I saw, John says, in heaven, so there's your scene, another great and marvelous sign. Pause. If you go back to chapter 12, there were the first two signs, the sign of the woman and the sign of the dragon, and those two are there, and I'm just, he's just, it's like another sign. So you could call this sign three. And then here's the sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Where have we heard of plagues? Where have we heard of plagues? Oh, yes, Moses and the Pharaoh and the ten bouncing back to that, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. So we have seven angels and seven plagues. Why seven? Well, we had seven seals, which were the first description of the judgments of God. Then we have the seven trumpets, which are the next seven descriptions of the judgments of God. And then we're going to have in the next chapter seven bowls of, and all of these are judgments of God. Now I don't know for sure. 21 judgments, or if that's stack them up, seven judgments described three different ways from three different points of view, like the suffering church, the world, and the throne room of God. I kind of like the second one, but sometimes I like things because they're new and I've never heard them before. So just kind of hold them both and just go, we'll move on. We don't know. And it's okay because the point is the same. God's judgment 
is coming, increasing, but it has an end. Okay, and here's where you see it. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. Okay, so these are the last ones. Last, because with them, God's wrath is completed. All right? Now, verse two, so that's, the, that's really the first thing, is that we see God's judgments will end, which means he'll slam his gavel, and he'll be done. And the sheep will be with the sheep, the Lamb's book of life, people who know and, and trust the Lord, Lord God through Jesus Christ, born again into the kingdom of God, and the rest. Okay? Jesus called him sheep and goats. He, he, he used all kinds of illustrations to say, God is going to, from the tares, he's going to separate. There is going to be a judgment. There's two judgments, but there's one judgment that's specifically separating his people from the rest that rejected him. And he's basically giving those who've rejected him what they want. I don't want to be under your authority. I don't want to follow you. I don't trust you. I don't like you. I just want to be apart from you. And God gives them that, and he's created a place for that, and that's called hell. Okay, lake of fire. There's lots of descriptions. Jesus described heaven. And so he treats it like a real place. I'm treating it like a real place. That doesn't mean all the descriptions are as literal as we might think, but it doesn't make them any less wicked or horrible. It just means that he could be using symbolism to describe something that's indescribable in our language. It's so, so bad, so harsh, so hard, so hard to receive. So, um, so when I say that, okay, first of all, I'm uncomfortable saying that because, right, everybody wants to be liked and nobody wants to be the one talking about, hey, you're going to hell. But let me just, let me just say this, okay? So I don't want to scare you into salvation, okay? Even though we are to fear the Lord, and that's, that's right and good. But I would much rather have a tear-filled conversion than a fear-filled conversion. Okay, now this is just me talking. This isn't scripture or anything. This is just me saying for a moment, I want us to be broken over our sin and the fact that we've sinned against a holy God instead of just being scared and I'm running for my life. Both are legit, okay? God um, motivated Abraham with, he enticed Abraham, right? He used carrots, if you will. And then sometimes he uses uh, more painful means to, to motivate us to do things. But maybe a combination is healthy, a fear-filled convert, but a tear-filled convert. In other words, we break God's heart when we've sinned. But it's not until we realize that we've done that and we care about that that it brings us to a place of brokenness over our own sin. I, can, I was for many years before I ever cried about the fact that I had offended and hurt my God. And it was ironically at camp. I was the youth pastor, though. I wasn't one of the campers. And I'm up there, and I'm just, I'm just bawling because I, it hits me. I, under, I feel like that message, whatever it was, it was something in there that God really showed me how God is grieved over my sin, whether it's my sinful thoughts, my sinful words, my sinful actions, or even my inactions that should be good and done. So when we think about it, and that's why the Ten Commandments are so important. The Ten Commandments aren't a bunch of rules to follow. You realize that, right? Because we can't. That's the whole point of the Old Testament. You can't do it. You need help. I need help. And Jesus is our help, okay? But the Ten Commandments show us how quickly God can break us down and show us we can't do it, right? You ever told a lie? It's one of the top ten. Have you ever stolen something? Think supply cabinet at work doesn't take much money to say I stole something, right? Think MP3 download that's not yours, right? Well, I can do it. That doesn't make it right. So, see, it doesn't take long to find out that we're a thief and a liar. You ever committed adultery or had any other kind of sexual sin? Well, no, I'm good. I think I'm good on that. Ever lusted after an image? Billboard? Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue? Anyone? Right? Then you've committed lust in your heart. And Jesus says, that's, that's adultery right here. And the only thing stopping you is opportunity. So now we're adultering, thieving, three of the top ten. So you see how quickly the Ten Commandments breaks us down and, right, and helps us see I'm a sinner in need of grace. I'm a sinner in need of mercy. And I need Jesus because he's the only source of true grace and mercy. You see that? Because God is just and he will punish sin. Now here's the good news. The sins that I have committed in my life, past, present, and even in the future, have already been judged on the cross. The punishment has already been dealt with, 
and Jesus absorbed it for me so that I wouldn't have to if I trust and follow him. So it is, there, is a, there is a sense in which I have a role to play here. I have to open the gift. I have to receive it and make it mine. I have to believe that God has made a way for me to be reconciled to him. So that's true for these people in Revelation 15. Okay? Now, we don't know how many Christians are around at this point. We don't know if the church has been raptured or not at this point. Probably, I'm think, I kind of lean towards early in that seven-year period, whether it's literal or figurative, I'm kind of leaning towards church is raptured early, and then there's some people who come to know Christ in the wake of that as they start to see the wrath of God poured out, and they're like sobered and realized, all those good people I loved and made fun of, and oh, they're gone, and I need to realize that what they believed was true. What did they believe? What did they believe? And they go to the churches, and they find people in those churches going, yeah, I was attending here for a long time, but I didn't understand Jesus, and now I understand. And then you see there's one of them's a preacher, it's like, yeah, I was preaching, but I didn't understand. And there will be preachers here, hopefully not me, that will be left behind, right? <laughs> preaching. Wouldn't that be ironic? Yeah, we were preaching through Revelation, so this is convenient because you know, we've all been left behind. So let's just keep reading. But you know, you, you got to think, do I understand? Not just here, but here. There's a connection that needs to happen between my head and my heart. There's a lot of people who believe in Jesus. They believe he existed. They might even believe he was a historical figure. There's tons of evidence for all of that. But that doesn't mean they trust him. I believe that Joe Biden is our president. I've never met him. I've never seen him. I haven't been to D.C. to see if he's actually sitting in the White House. But I believe he's there. Trusting that that's true. But I don't know. But I have a confidence in that. Why? Because there's a lot of evidence. Well, we're talking about something that's way better evidence. And it's a way bigger truth. So, I'm sorry, I got off. Okay, here we go. So, verse 2, and I saw, this is the second one, I saw what looked like a sea of glass, more imagery, glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, the sea of glass, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image. Now, remember, there was two beasts. So, you had the dragon and the two beasts. This is a couple chapters back. The dragon is Satan. First beast is the Antichrist. Second beast is called the false prophet. Okay? But the Bible uses the words beast in Revelation. In other books, Paul uses other language like Antichrist and false prophet. Actually, false prophets used there too. Okay, so um, these are people who've been victorious. They've been victorious over the dragon who sent the Antichrist and the false prophet to deceive people, to worship a false god. Okay, and that's the one world religion that will emerge under the one world government that will emerge and all of that that people have talked about because they're reading it and saying future history says something along those lines is going to happen. I don't know what it's going to be called. I'm not saying American Airlines, one world, I'm kidding you, I promise you, I'm not saying any of that. Point is, though, that there is going to be governmental control on a global scale and there's going to be a religious counterpart to that and each beast controls one of those two pieces. Okay. This beast was actually going to be slain and then sort of brought back to life as a mockery, as a kind of a pretend Christ figure. And the false prophet will be like the false Holy Spirit. And he's the one that's going to lead that church, if you will, that religion. Okay? So these are people who were victorious over that. So the, the false religion and the false government, what are they going to do? They're going to make everybody take a mark. Okay, this is what you, you know, you hear people talk about the mark of the beast, 666 and all. They're going to make everybody it can take that mark and they're going to say, if you don't take that, you can't go shop at Walmart or anywhere else. Even Amazon.com will go, oh, got to see your sign, let's see your mark. And, and so the people of God will have a choice to make and there will be lots of opportunities for this to happen. But basically, will I trust the Lord and not take the mark and not worship the beast? And, and it sounds so obvious, right? It will be so subtle and, and um, it'll be so deceiving that it won't be easy for most people to see. In fact, most people are going to make fun of those who don't. They're going to be like, what is this, your Mark of the Beast story in church school? You know, they're going to make fun of you. They're going to they're gonna call you out and, and you're going to have to decide what, what am I going to do and then what am I going to say? Because the ones who are victorious that it's talking about here are those who who received everything the beast threw at them, and they were faithful. Okay? So you think persecution is bad in our world today, and we probably don't think that because we don't really have it here in America yet, though it's 
happening. It's just not happening a lot to us yet. But you go to other countries and people are dying for their faith because they won't deny Christ. That's the, that's the only reason. They're locked up for years in prison because they won't deny Jesus as Lord. They, they just won't do it. In China, the persecuted church that lives underground, and I don't mean literally, although sometimes they're in caves, um, they, the underground church, their pastors, they say, haven't been to seminary yet until they've been in prison for their faith and come out and stayed faithful, because they don't all. That's their seminary. So I've been to seminary, but I haven't been to seminary, Okay. So they're standing by this sea of glass. What's that about? The only other place there's sea of glass in Scripture is Revelation 4. It's in the throne room. And so I'm not quite sure that I get this. Okay, But the fact that there's fire underneath, which is a, one of the many manifestations that God, how he reveals himself as smoke and fire a lot, like in the temple, like in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud and things like that. It, 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 to me, it kind of says this whole wrath thing's about to go off. It's about to go it's like she's about to blow, kind of volcanic-like mindset. But yet those who are victorious are standing next to it. One translation, NAS, says standing on it. They, they wouldn't do that unless they felt secure where they were. And they have been faithful. Now, what's going to follow is a song. So it says here, um, those who have been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name, that's the 666, they held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. And then what follows is a song. I want to end with the song, okay? But the, okay, so let, let's come back. Let's go to verse 5. This is the third one, and we'll come back to, to finish with the song. After, I, after this, after this song, I looked. There's the third Saul looked. And I saw in heaven the temple, so we're looking at heaven still, this heavenly vision, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law. Think Old Testament, think Israel marching for 40 years through the prom, towards the promised land, but in the wilderness, God's providing manna by night, the pillar of cloud by day. What's in the tabernacle? It's basically a tent church, okay, mostly not covered, mostly it's a convertible. There's just tent fence, multiple football fields in size. And in a small 30, 60, 30 by 60 tented area, we have the Holy of Holies and the Most Holy Place, which, which is where the Ark of the Covenant is, which represents the presence of God. And what is in that chest? One of the things in that chest are the covenant, the Ten Commandments, chiseled on stone, which we talked about already, right? And, and they're, they're carrying that around. And what is God saying here? He's basically saying, we've all broken that. And I've already illustrated how easy that is to do, um, that we've broken and and the old testament is 15 years of history of god's people basically saying and they couldn't do it in 1500 years they never succeeded in doing it we all try to do this thing called life being perfect as he is perfect and we just can't do it we need supernatural intervention jesus boom okay so after this i looked i saw in heaven this temple that is the tabernacle of the covenant law and it was opened I won't go into it. There's four openings in, in the book of Revelation. This is the third. Um, out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. Okay, so this is about, this drama curtain is about to fall. They were dressed in clean, shining linen. There's light because God is light and his, his people shine. And wore golden sashes around their chest. Then one of the four living creatures, remember those? The ones that are around, the, they're always around the throne of God. They're the closest to God. Um, one, of the, one of the four gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, again, imagery, symbol, symbols, filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. In case you forgot who God was, he lives forever and ever. He has been from the beginning, um, before the beginning, because he has no beginning, and he has no end. And I say that like that's no big deal. You, you realize that we don't get that, right? Because that would really hurt our brains. Can you pull a brain muscle? I don't know. Maybe that would do it. Verse 8, and the temple was filled with smoke. Again, manifestation of God, but not full manifestation of God, because if God showed up, we would be dead because he's so holy, and we're not yet. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. Okay? These are the things that move, should move us to worship him. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues, all of the seven angels were completed. Chapter 16, those 
bowls are poured out. Okay, so that's another time for no, that's another day. Okay, now let's go back to the song, because to me there's some really good stuff that I want to I think feel like end here with. Because I I want you wrestling with this idea: Am I dis, It's not am I a disciple? It's never the right question. The right question is always whose disciple am I? Who am I following? Because we're all following somebody or something. And usually behind the thing is somebody. So uh, like we saw in our Peanuts cartoon last week, the book of reevaluations, it is a good idea to reevaluate constantly. Where am I with you, Lord? Okay, so verse 3, and sang the song, that is those who have overcome the beast. Here's how we're going to end. And sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. So is it two songs? Is it one song? What's that about? So remember Moses, we said, and remember the plagues in Egypt. We said Moses led the people of Israel out of slavery through the Red Sea, parting of the Red Sea, and detour 40 years in the wilderness before Joshua takes them across the Jordan River into the Promised Land, okay? That was all triggered by God's ten plagues. And the tenth plague was the Passover. And the key character in that is the Passover lamb, where they slaughter the lamb, smear and paint front door frame by instructions of God. This is the tenth plague. And the whole idea there was the blood of the lamb covers your household and protects your firstborn from the destroyer, the angel of death, who will come over in the night. So if you trusted that God's instructions through Moses were good, you did everything Moses said to do. You painted your door frames with the blood of that lamb that, that was sacrificed on behalf of the firstborn in your... The angel of death passed over your house and didn't take anyone or any animal or any person. And if you didn't do that, then you lost your firstborn. Okay? So that's in the mind of these first century Christians as they're reading and listening to the book of Revelation read to them, maybe for the, you know, whenever, whenever they hear it, the first time and, and every time after that, they hear the song of the God's servant Moses. They're thinking Passover, Passover lamb. They're thinking Exodus. They're thinking delivered from 400 years of slavery. Yeah. It's not just our country that's had slavery. It's every country that's had slavery, okay? It goes back. That's sin in, in action. All right, and of the lamb. Remember, we've seen this over and over and over. The lamb is is symbolic of Jesus. It's one of the characteristics and attributes of Jesus. What's a lamb like? A lamb is innocent and defenseless, and totally yields to whatever threat is is there. Okay, a child could scare a lamb to death, possibly. I mean, they're just, just so vulnerable, and that's why they were used. One of the reasons they were used as sacrifice. Sacrifices in the Old Testament sacrificial system. They weren't the only animal used, but they are the one that is, that's the symbolic of Jesus. Remember, we have God sitting on the throne in the heavenly throne room, and he says that the Lamb of God who was slain but is standing, cross, resurrection, symbolizes Jesus. So when we see Jesus in heaven, let's just be clear, I don't think we're going to see Jesus in with, with wool. I don't think we're going to see him with little horns sticking out and and all of the other imagery that we see, I, those are all symbols to tell us what he's going to be like and what he is like when we see him. I think he'll be in his resurrected body. Now, he can do whatever he wants, and I'm good with that. As long as I get to see him, I'm, I'm excited to see him. Okay, so let's look at the song. The song has two couplets, first pair of lines, second pair of lines, couplets. Then it has the main point and three reasons for that main point. Okay, so this is like a mini-sermon uh, call it an applet in the app, okay? Here we go. Great and marvelous are your deeds, truth, and then it's a title, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Let's unpack that. So great and marvelous are your deeds, and we say this, and we let this roll off our tongue, and then we move on like it's no big deal. Let me, let me see if I can paint a picture, okay? So I heard, I have, I don't, I, this is somebody I talked to, this is a long time ago, and they were like, yeah, we love to, we're going to the Alabama concert. And I'm like, okay, Alabama, the, you know, the country group that was popular in the 80s and 90s, maybe. Um, and so they went, they, yeah, we love to go see Alabama. We've seen them a hundred times. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's wild. They're like, really, a hundred times? I'm like, what do you mean that you've seen them a hundred times? On TV? No, no, we've been to a hundred concerts. 
that Alabama has put on. And I had in my moment enough sense in that moment, doesn't happen often, to not say anything. They must really like the group, Alabama, to go see a hundred different live shows. Now, I don't know how many they paid for, but my impression is they paid for those. These are grown adults I'm talking to. Well, they're older people anyway. Okay, so they went to a hundred concerts. Now, I don't fault anybody for liking the group and liking any group so much that you would love to see a hundred shows. Okay, that's not the point. They really think Alabama hung the moon when it comes to music. They think they can sing and play and their songs are amazing. And I'm like, self out, that's great, okay? That's borderline worship to me, but you know what? I don't know their heart, and they could just genuinely really enjoy the music and not worship the group Alabama, okay? But let's just say kind of, it's kind of like that. Some people do worship athletes, actresses and actors, um, musicians, right? Scientists, writers, um, um, people who do movies and films, producers, directors. Now, think of the fav your favorite musician and who, who you would be like, well, if they gave me the money, I'd probably go to 100 shows. They're that good. Think of who that would be for you. And obviously for you, they would be amazing. And you would say, you could say, great and marvelous are they at that. And then I would go, okay, so let's compare them to God for just a second. Okay? They created the lyrics and the music, and they put it together in such a way that there's melody and maybe harmony, and there's all these different parts instrumentally, and they can play it forwards and backwards because they've played it a zillion times, and they've recorded different versions, and they're just, they've mastered those songs, and they're masters of those songs. No one plays them better. And then I go, and then there's God, who could do what you just did, clearly, he blessed them with the ability to do that. Plus, oh yeah, God had to invent music, ears, vocal cords, music, music theory. You see where I'm going with that, right? He, he didn't just come and say, let's make something. He said, I gotta, he said, I gotta make the stuff to make this. He made it from scratch. So when you see great and marvelous are your deeds, let's remember who we're talking about. Let's don't just blow by these verses. This is why we don't worship deeply. This is why we can sing a song of how great God is with our hands in our pocket and be unmoved visually. I'm not saying the person's not moved. I'm just saying, how do you do that? I, I just It's all I can do not to be embarrassing myself up here sometimes because it's songs in the and. And, and our songs are even so far short. And that's just one example. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Lord means master. God, there is no other. Almighty means all-powerful, omnipotent. That means there's no one stronger, and it's not even close for second place. Second couplet, just and true are your ways. This describes God. Just and true are your ways. Okay, now think about that. We're talking about the wrath of God. This makes us uncomfortable because we think sometimes, maybe, God's wrath is not justified. It's not rooted in truth. It's not fair. That's, what we, that's how we say it. God's not fair. That's too much punishment for the crime. That's where I usually fall. I'm like, come on, God, that's a little strong there. I mean, he just, and I'm talking about stories in Scripture, <laughs> and, and I'm always wrong because when we sin, we underestimate how bad that is in the eyes of the one who created us from scratch to live a perfect life that would lead to joy, happiness, and all the things that we really crave that we undermine because of our actions and our attitudes and our beliefs. He is just and true. That means he's trustworthy, right? Think of the people you trust the most. They are people that you rely on because you believe they tell the truth more often than not. Well, here's someone who always tells the truth. In fact, in Titus, 
the book of Titus, it says that God cannot lie. So if something you want to do, a little bar joke, not that I'm encouraging you to go to the bar, but you know, if you get in the bar and you, have, you need to come up with a joke, you can say, hey, I got one for you. Can, is there, I can tell you something that God cannot do, and it's in the Bible. And you're like, no, nah, God can do whatever he wants, right? He can't lie. It says it. I can't remember the reference. So if you know it, shout it out. It's Titus. Yeah, I don't remember either. God cannot lie. It's the first chapter. All right. Um, so he's just and true. And then it says this title again, King of the Nations. Not King of a Nation. King of the Nations. King of the Globe. And you could just go to the universe. And you go, well, what about the Martians? Well, if you think they're Martians, then he's king over them too. I'm okay with that. Martians landing on our planet will not change my theology one bit. God is still king. Okay? Uh, I don't think, but I've not been to Area 51 yet, so there's that. Okay, so now, here's the main point, verse 4, and we're going to land this plane, okay? Verse 4 says, who will not fear you, Lord? Who will not fear you, in light of these things that we've already said, and bring glory to your name? Now, this is saying the same thing two different ways. Who will not fear you? Now, remember, we're not talking about being scared, unless you don't know him, then you should be scared of the Lord, right? Because he holds your life in his hand, hello, right? And he can end it anytime he wants. He can extend it as long as he wants. And your eternal destiny is in his hand. But fear is more than being afraid. It's, it's like respect and awe, okay? It's kind of what runs through me whenever blue lights go like, I pull over whether it's me or not. And I'm like, okay, all right, it's going to be okay. You, you know, because usually I'm doing something wrong, and I know I'm guilty, and it's just a matter of saying, yes, sir, yes, sir, thank you for the tickets, sir, so grateful, because that's kind of what I deserve. But, but a lot of times they just go right on by, or, and, and so um, it, there is a sense in which there's some fear, because God is God, and I'm not. Okay, let's just keep, make that really clear. And, and everybody said amen to that, right? Because that's good news, that he's not God, um, that, that there is a God, and I'm not him. But, but also, um, this glory bring glory. What does that mean? So when I think of glory, the most literal thing I can think of is light. Now, it means to exalt and to magnify, and we could get into all kinds of telescope and, ma and microscope illustrations, but I just want to focus on the light for a second because it goes with our darkness to light theme. When you want to highlight somebody or something, shining a light on them literally or figuratively is the way to do it, right? When some, what's happening right now, we are, right? I mean, it's, there's an uncomfortableness to this. There's nowhere to hide, for one. And two, who am, I, who am I to be on a platform of any height? Okay, And the only reason this is acceptable is because of the one I'm lifting up in front of you and shining a light on what it says here. So this is, another, this is an example of how to glorify God. You can do it across the counter, though. You can, do it across the, you can now do it across the table at Chick-fil-A because some of them are open now, eh? How about that? Dining halls are opening up. That's right. I was in two different ones this week. First time in over a year. I can shine a light on in front of, across the table of somebody else. I can turn my Bible around, or I can just talk to them and point them to Jesus. Okay, so who will not do that? And these, this is the song of the victorious, the ones who have been tempted to not do that and have been faithful. Right, don't you want to hear good and well done, good and faithful servant at the end of the day? These folks all will, and we in Christ are part of that. So, so maybe you're like me. I heard this story this week. Um, it fits here. Maybe you're like me and you're going, well, maybe if I'm in a situation where I have to, I've got a gun pointed at me and somebody's asked me basically, do you believe in God? Tassie Bernal, right? Columbine High School. You remember back then, 20 years ago? And she said yes. It's the name of her book. She said yes. When the gunman, and then the gunman, one of her fellow students who knew her and knew she believed in God, shot her and killed her. She was a martyr for Christ a witness with her life. That's what martyr means, a witness with your life. A Christian martyr is one who does that for Christ. And she did that. So Corey Ten Boone asks her dad one day, do that when my time comes, if I'm going to be able to say yes with the gun pointed at me, so to speak. And her father said, well, you know, and I don't know if she was a little girl when she asked this question. That's the impression I got. And he says, when do I give you the train ticket when it's time for you to go run, ride the train? And do I give it to you three weeks in advance? And she says, no. He says, right, I give it to you right before you get on the train. God's strength to do what is right comes just in time for you to need it. So that's 
that gives me faith and confidence. I don't have to worry about, will I say yes when I, and be faithful, or will I deny Christ? Um, he will give me what I need to do it. I still have to do it. He won't do it for me. But he will give me what I need to say yes. And he will give it to you too. You know, when, um, Christian, in the first century, the Christian documents that we can find of the early church, they say that when people died for their faith as a martyr, it's, uh, the documents say they called it their victory day, their day of victory, because they finished and did not betray Christ. They were faithful to the end, and they won. That's what this is talking about, those who are victorious over the beast and its image, over the, everything the beast threw. Um, Here's three reasons why we shouldn't fear, why we should fear the Lord and glorify him. Here's three reasons. Number one, for you alone are holy. God is holy, right? Zealous, infinite zeal for good, infinite opposition to evil. Second reason, all nations will come and worship before you because why? He's worthy. And that's what worship does. It says, I'm going to shine a spotlight on you. I'm going to exalt you. It's what we are doing overtly when we sing songs. It's what we're supposed to be doing. We may be doing it, or maybe doing it poorly, but it's what we're doing when we sing songs of praise to him. We are ascribing with our lips what we hope to do with our lives. In this hour, we do with our lips what we hope to do the rest of the week. The other with our whole lives. Live, you know, 24-7 worship. Be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, Romans 12.1. Okay, so then he says, all the nations will come worship, and then here's the last reason. And I could basically pack everything I said into this last verse. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Okay, so everything that God has ever done has been revealed. Everything that matters, everything that matters to us for sure, has already been revealed as of this, poem, this moment. So that's God's, remember I, used, I told you the four days of camp? God is creator. He's created us. That's one of his righteous acts. He didn't have to do that. He's motivated by love. God cares. He's the God who cares. There's another reason. He's the God who calls, calls us out of darkness into light, and he's the one who commands us to go back into the light, darkness as the light, and pull some more out. Okay? So those are it. So whose side are you on? Whose disciple are you? Who are you following? Judgment in future history is coming. And statistically, most Americans will miss, will, will fall under the judgment and wrath of God instead of the mercy of God. The majority of Americans, whose names are not written in the book of life, and the youngest generations have the smallest percentage whose names are written in the book. And statistically, people who trust Christ... 80% of them do it by the age of 18. After that, very few find the Lord because their hearts get hard and crusty and they, they're just not receptive. So, hello, children, teens, college students, right? Especially, but it's true for all of us. We all stand before God one day. He is God. We're not. Are you ready to meet him? Whose side are you on? Lord God, I have, um, I'm grateful, uh, Lord, that you gave us these words to, to ponder, to think about. They sober us in a good way. Because they cause us to realize life is precious and the future is real, eternal, and our decisions here have implications on where we end up and how that plays out. God, your book is very clear on who you are and what you're like. For those who will take the time to read it and think about it, they will have and be equipped to make the decision that is in their best interest. Many in this room have done that. Many of those watching online have done this. And I'm grateful that they realize that God created them, that God cares for them, and that God has called them from darkness to light. But Lord, not following your commands to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to not love our neighbor as ourselves. We're not doing that. And it is why our country and it's why our world continues to slide away from you. 
we are relying on worldly powers to accomplish what can only be accomplished through spiritual power. We need to quit looking to princes and politicians and start looking at the Prince of Peace as our hope. And so, Lord, I pray, starting with me, that we would repent of our silence, of our cowardice, of our impotent faith in action, and that we would, that we would act and speak with a courageous, bold love that shows people who are wherever we are what you're like. So it's not just words, but it includes our words so that it's very clear why we do what we do the way we do it. Why we should, when many would show justice and want justice. Why we don't rely on the powers of this world to accomplish what only your power can accomplish. That's so hard, God. It's so far out of the box. Lord, it's not out of your box. It's not out of your word. And Lord, I pray that we would fall in love with you and your word again. Maybe for the first time. But again, if we have in the past, and that it would be seen in our words and our attitudes and our actions. And uh, we know that when we do that, it changes lives. And that's what we ask for, change lives, transformation in us and through us. And so we ask you, God, to get us on our knees, to cause us to call out to you in repentance and faith for getting ourselves where we need to be so that we can then lead others to do the same. God, as we celebrate what you did on the cross through this bread and this cup of grape juice to remind us of the body broken and the blood shed, may we confess our sins right here and now in this room before we get up to do that, that we would not make a mockery of your beautiful ordinance called the Lord's Supper or Communion or Eucharist, and that we would go in thanksgiving for what you've done and made possible through the cross of Christ. We thank you that Jesus didn't stay dead that he's alive, that you resurrected him, giving us hope of a future resurrection bodily, physically, just like Jesus's, for each of us who believe. May we walk in confidence of that so that we can face whatever the beast throws at us faithfully. In Christ's name.